having a look at Psalm 15 today. Um, if you grew up in a, in a Christian house like I did, there's a good chance that you have some experience uh, of, of house guests. Uh, there was a real kind of emphasis on it, uh, I think maybe more so in the 80s and 90s than there is now. Now if we have visiting I grew up in a pastor's house. If we have visiting speakers, maybe we put them up in a hotel or something like that. But when I was a kid, our home was always, you know, it had a guest coming and and going. Um, And it led to a variety of rich experiences. I think the Fryer girls could probably all also tell stories like this. Um, I remember getting a detailed sort of uh, blow-by-blow account from a heroin addict that was sleeping in our lounge room with my young sisters at the time of, of, of how he had to give himself enemas um, for some reason. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, for some reason, that wasn't actually the tipping point at getting him out of the lounge room. It was when we discovered uh, some syringes under the couch uh, that... Uh, that, that the situation maybe became a little untenable with young children in the house. I also remember there was a, a visiting minister from overseas. We, we didn't have like a spare room, so if we had someone staying at our house, it was my, the, the one boy had to vacate his room, which makes sense. And there was this one uh, blessed brother uh, who was morbidly obese, and um, I remember coming back into... Uh, my room after having the house snored down for the weekend and there was like green stalactites of something that looked like snot on the ceiling above my bed and I still haven't uh, got a sort of reasonable scientific explanation of exactly why that that happened. Um, But increasingly um, the way that that sort of that cities are developing um, it's becoming like a pattern of life. Increasingly, people are sharing homes as well, you know, two families in one home or kind of a mix. We're in that situation at the moment. We actually have been for most of our married life, Cheryl and I, um, living in, in community in one form or another. And it does lead to these situations where there's kind of, there's, there's, let's say, tensions, relational tensions develop in a house where there's some sort of sharing going on. And we've seen it all. We've had um, somebody who turned their bedroom into a cosmetics production um, sort of laboratory. Uh, We had one person who paid rent for a year and we never saw him at all. Um, We also had uh, one uh, person that, that we did love dearly that somehow managed to smell worse when they got out of the shower than when they went in and the whole bathroom would smell the way that you would imagine it should before the person had a shower. Um, Anyone remember the movie The Odd Couple with Walter Matthau and... Uh, so there's this one type A personality kind of guy who's very particular and the other guy who's a little more easygoing, uh, a bit freewheeling. And the whole sort of dramatic tension of that show was around like the difficulty of two personalities coexisting, two middle-aged men who suddenly find themselves cohabitating. And it all points to this thing that I'm sure that we're aware of, that sharing uh, life, particularly in a domestic context, can be tricky at times. When uh, it's just like a nuclear family that's in there, 
I think it works because you have this deep sort of sense of commitment to one another, which means that you set your rhythms of life up to kind of work with one another. But in a context like a share house, um, what often happens is there isn't that deep level of commitment and there isn't necessarily a deep level of shared value. And so people bring their own agendas, right? Their own rhythms of life, the outworking of their values, and they can kind of be in, in conflict with one another. One of the things I love about where we're going to go with Psalm 15 today is it functions as a little bit of a checklist of what makes life with God work. And um, it's not a new kind of picture, it's not unique to Psalm 15. Christians um, and Jews have often talked about a life of worship, a life connected with God, as a life kind of cohabitating with God, a life living with God, a life lived in the house of God, if you want to think of it that way. So let me um, just read Psalm 15 for us before we have a quick chat about it. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises the vile but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps faith uh, and keeps his oath even when it hurts, who lends his money to the poor without interest and who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. They who do these things will never be shaken. It's nice, isn't it? I'm going to have a drink, actually. That's nice. Not dying of thirst is nice as well. So you can see right from the get-go with this psalm that the emphasis is on what it takes to live with God, what it takes to have a shared life with God. Um, Living in God's house, it makes sense that God's values predominate. They dictate the rhythms of life there. So the psalmist, and it's David, uh, the tradition tells us, asks the question, what does it take to live in that place? The sacred tent, you know, the tabernacle where God lived for so long. Um, Or the temple on the top of the holy mountain in Jerusalem, pictures um, of a place where God's rule actually works, right? So we think about the world not entirely functioning according to God's rule and reign, but both the tabernacle and the temple were pictures of the universe. If you read those overly detailed instructions about how the tabernacle was put together, you'll see that it's a picture of what we would call the cosmos, the physical universe. And the temple um, is also a picture of the universe, but it's a picture of the universe that is working in accordance with God's reign and rule, with God's values. 
we might not um, necessarily think too much about what it takes to live in line with God's values in our own home. I, I hope those of us who have been Christians for a while do. Um, but there have definitely been Christians in the past that have really had to wrestle with this. In the early days of the church, where Christians were terribly persecuted under the Roman Empire, many Christians were sort of pushed out of their place in society. That might be a familiar idea to you. But um, Christians were sort of so um, countercultural and seen as a bit of a threat, uh, often sort of... Uh, sneered at that um, in many cases they lost their place not just in society but in their very families. Families would sort of excommunicate the Christian in their midst because you know I mean it, it was a whole significant change in orientation. To be a Christian meant that maybe you couldn't be such a good Roman citizen in some instances or perhaps uh, a member of a Jewish family and so one of the phenomena that we saw in those first few centuries of the growing church was many Christians actually fleeing persecution and living on the margins of society and some of those who we now know as the church mothers and fathers actually were sort of forced into a place where they took up residence in the desert and, and began to form these new communities together of Christians. And it was like sort of wiping the slate clean and facing the question that we're talking about here already this morning, what does it look like to live in the house of God? What does it look like to live out the values of God? They were asking themselves this question without um, necessarily having their immediate family to work it out with. What does it mean to be now a single man living with a bunch of other single men under the rule and reign of God? How do we do that? Uh, part of this, what I'm talking about is actually the emergence of what we call the monastic movement, right? So uh, Christian brothers and sisters kind of building new families, building new communities um, that were really intended to be based on the rule of God, on God's values. And one of the ways that they kind of came up with to work the answer to this question out um, was this, they called it a pathway of illumination. And I'm not going to get stuck into the Latin. I'm just putting it there so that you know that it might be a real thing that you could look into if you wanted to. But they talked about the way of purging, the way of illumination, and the way of unity. And the idea was that if you kind of cleanse all the junk out of your life, you could come to a position of being able to really ask the question about, now that the table's cleared, now that the room's empty, what is it that God wants to put in that space? And from that point, you can begin to live together with God. Now, to kind of bring that into our world a little bit, it's maybe not unlike the bachelor um, who has a bachelor pad, a man cave, as it were, um, recently engaged, and it just makes sense that once he and his wife get married, they'll live together and they'll move into together the apartment that he's already occupying. Now, put yourself in this situation as the betrothed uh, 
you know, the wife-to-be in this situation. You come in and the, and, and the husband-to-be is clued in enough to know that things are going to change. What's she going to say? It, it'll probably start with, that's got to go. And there'll probably be a few that's got to goes in that little arrangement. So, you know, he puts the bar on Gumtree. Uh, maybe he puts the video game things. It's that long since I've been a bachelor. I don't even remember what those things are called. Uh, into storage, whatever it is. Together, they begin to kind of cleanse the apartment. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because they're thinking about what it's going to look like to live their shared values out, right? What, what she needs to be able to do in the apartment, what she's going to bring. So out go the bar stools, out go the video games, um, out goes the dartboard uh, from the kitchen. Uh, and that is what we would call the via purgativa, the stage where we're purging, where we're getting rid of all the junk. The stage of illumination uh, is where you work together to decide what goes in, right? And this, you know, this is kind of like spring cleaning to, to a degree so that you can fit the new article of furniture in, the new settee, so you can arrange the furniture in a way that's going to work for where you're at in life. Once you've done those two things, then you can sort of start to, to trial it, right? To see how your values outwork themselves in that space that you've put together intentionally for the outworking of your values. It's basically that threefold path about cleaning out, about arranging, so that you can come to this new way of life together. Now, I actually um, have worked with that idea a bit because I find it pretty helpful. Um, recently when I had the opportunity to, uh, to, to speak at that conference in Cambodia that we went to, I actually talked about this, what it means to do life with God, what it means to kind of be roommates with God. How do you set your life up so that it works for, for both of you? but it works for God's values. Because if you're moving in with God, it's because you identify with God's values. You want to be a part of his household. You want to accept him as your father um, to kind of be topical to the day. Now, I think there's really something to this. Um, And I think we probably all could benefit from sort of considering this threefold path again, even if we feel like we're living with God, because, you know, you can always, uh, you you sort of need to spring clean once a year, you can always rearrange your furniture better, you might even be able to add to what you're doing. One of the things I like about Psalm 15, um, and what we're going to get into, is it can kind of help us with the what so this threefold path is useful uh, with the how. Like, how might I go about moving in with God, coming in to his household, beginning to align my life with his values? What I like about Psalm 15 is it starts to say, these are the elements that will probably be in place if you're going to be living the values of God out in the house of God. 
I'm going to work backwards, actually, from verse 5. It's a, it's a short psalm. The first thing that I notice, verse 5 says, The person who lends money to the poor without interest and who does not accept a bribe against the innocent will probably find that they can live in that place. What this speaks to is that it's going to come up in our budget sheet. I thought I'd get the awkward money stuff out of, out of the way first. It's going to come up in our budget. It's been uh, a tricky sort of thing when you, when you unpack what this verse seems to be saying, particularly this thing about not charging interest, right? So there are many times in the Old Testament where it talks about this principle that interest should not be charged. Um, and um, Christians and Jews have had mixed uh, experiences in the application of what's going on here. It helps to kind of contextualise where this commandment's coming from. I'm not going to give you a black and white answer, but maybe give us some ideas to sort of help us think about this. So the law... The section of the Old Testament that that has these kind of injunctives about what we should and shouldn't do and that speaks about not charging interest is written to a people who were predominantly agrarian, right? So most people in Israel at the time that the law was received or was intended to be applied were farmers. Yep, that kind of makes sense. And in a society like that, um, prosperity basically equals land, um, if you have land to farm, to work, having uh, that sort of an asset like that, to use our language, is, is the kind of capital that you're most interested in, actually. It's not like you have uh, shares or gold bullion or maybe even money, but if you've got land, you've got a shot at being wealthy. And the other thing that's worth kind of understanding when it comes to thinking this through is it wasn't just about wealth for you or for your children but they're thinking like generations ahead right so you've got like a homeland for you and the generations after you and I mean that's such a part of the Jewish mindset that it even has this kind of eschatological dimension to it so you and I might think of hopefully we don't think of sitting on a cloud playing a harp as kind of that's the picture that God is drawing us all towards Um, we might have some idea about heaven Um, but for for the Jewish people for the most part um, God's will for the end of time was that they would all live peacefully in the land that God had given them and so that end that sort of as the target of history was actually built into their economy, which makes sense. So you might have heard of this concept of jubilee, right? Every 50 years, it's like the economy resets. There's an understanding that in the exchange of an economy, some people do better than other people. One person's land might really flourish during a particular season and another person's not so much. What it looks like to flourish in that context looks like probably gaining more land, And what it looks like to be impoverished in that context looks like to have no land. God seems to be setting things up in the law of the Old Testament 
to kind of work against the emergence of the haves and the have-nots, particularly over the long span, right? So he says, the law seems to say it's not a good thing if some people have more land than they need when other people don't have any land. Every 50 years, it resets, right? And so people get their lands restored to them. You can see the same principle coming in with this uh, injunctive not to charge interest. We don't want a system that ends up with haves and have-nots. We want the outworking of God's vision for his people that everyone should have a homeland, that everyone and 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 the generations after them should have a shot at flourishing, a shot at prosperity, as it were. So God builds uh, justice, as it were, into the economy of his people. He's against the idea of the haves and the have-nots. What this looks like for us may vary from one sort of household to another. But the overriding principle is the same, that justice should be built into our budgets, right? Right? We should be able to look down, and I'm like I'm talking really here. We should be able to look down our personal budgets and go, "This is not just about my flourishing. It's not even just about my family's flourishing. This is about a, a commonwealth, right? This is about God's intention that all people should know His blessing, that all people should be a part of His plan, that all people should have a shot at inheritance." And that'll look a certain way when we tally up where our money goes. And that, I mean, that really is one of the things that under, undermines the principle of tithing in our midst, is that we kind of recognise that uh, having it on our, on our balance sheet makes it a reality. So Psalm 15, I think, is, to say, is, is saying to us, if you want to live in God's house you're going to need to be able to bring your budget in, right? Your budget is going to align with the father's budget, with the budget of the household. You'll have a hard time living in that household, living in that tent on that hill, if your budgets are out of sync. God only runs one budget in his house. And so is your budget a part of his budget? Your accountant would be worried if you ran more than one budget. No. If, you know, this is, the, this is the, the budget that I show people, this is the legitimate budget, but there's some other stuff kind of going on down, down here that I maybe don't talk to people about. Your accountant will be worried because they know that if you get audited, then you've got real real issues. Oh, so I see you're spending money that doesn't appear on your budget. Where's that coming from? To live in the house of God means to have a budget that is a part of God's budget. And maybe there's a challenge to us then to look at our budgets and ask, do they say justice? Do they line up? In verse 4, it says this, The person who can live in the house of God 
despises a vile person, but honours those who fear the Lord. They keep an oath even when it hurts, and they do not change their mind. This strikes us as a little bit strange because we can read, even in the Psalms, but definitely throughout the rest of Scripture, that we're not to despise, right? That we're to love even our enemies. That Christ loved those who were his enemies, even to the point of laying his life down for them. And so, as I read commentaries on this, the suggestion was made that um, what this is really about is about not becoming accustomed to what is vile. It's not actually about a particular person, because any particular person, no matter what they're doing, God loves them, they're made in God's image. But it's about not becoming accustomed to the vileness of what they may be doing. Um, I don't know if you've um, ever noticed anyone who runs Google calendars here, I do, um, and I try and work that thing as hard as possible. There's this thing they do which is kind of cool and also kind of creepy where you can review your timeline. Has anybody, has anybody seen that? So you can click on this thing, your timeline, and it actually maps out over the course of your week, month, day, where you've been, which is another kind of uh, way of kind of taking stock of your life, which is a little bit scary. Um, so, you know, it'll show you travelling to work and then... I'm freaking you out now. You guys don't know that that Google's keeping this information about you. Um, Every now and then it asks me, what were you doing here? Which is, I don't know if I should tell them, but I'm glad that they they asked. What were you doing in the valley at 9.30pm on Friday night? Seeing Steve Bell, of course. Um, But in the same way that our budget should speak to justice, our calendar should speak to righteousness, how we're spending our time. There's two ways of kind of thinking about righteousness. And Graham talked about it a bit last week, that it's not so much about, you know, your personal sins, whether or not you smoke cigarettes or not, whether or not you imbibe alcohol or not. That's part of it. But it's more about God's pursuit of justice and and imperative for justice on the big scale. So how are you treating other people? in your affairs. When I look at um, the way that Google's kind of tracking where I am, the thought occurs to me that it actually tells me a lot about where my home base is. Um, I'm obviously spending a lot of time here, a lot of time at home, a lot of time at the college where I teach. And the thing about uh, any of those places is that, you know, I can... I can be on God's mission or not there. Um, I hope that I've structured my life so that it's in alignment with God's vision, with God's values. But what is most important is not necessarily the geography of where I am. It's what I'm doing while I'm there. I can come in uh, on a Monday when there's no one here in the office uh, and play video games in in my office. And that's probably not really an outworking of God's vision and values. It's not about the place in particular. It's about what I'm doing. The reason why I could visit um, Steve Bell in the valley on a Friday night is because he's not out there boozing. He's out there on God's mission, helping those people who have gotten themselves into trouble. And so it becomes about where your sort of spiritual home base is. 
actually. We would like to imagine that as Christians we have this sense of mission and that we're going into the places in the world where there are vile problems. But what we're doing in those contexts is what's key. If it's a sense uh, that we're on a mission from the temple, wherever that may be, into the world, that's a good thing. The opposite of that is being in those places in the world that really need God's love, but living there and just visiting the temple occasionally, as it were. Do you know what I mean? So um, it's like where you are being most influenced from. What is your driving motivation? To have a calendar that speaks righteousness is to have God as our home base, that place that is shaping our, the culture of our heart and our mind. It's not living in a spiritual slum and visiting the temple. It's living in the temple, living in that place with God and going out from there. It's not living in that place that's working against God and just popping back home every now and again. And so to live with God, to be able to dwell in his in his tent to dwell in the temple with God means that we can bring our calendar into his house as well. One of the other things that's a mixed blessing about Google calendars, and maybe I'm doing a bit of evangelism here for for Joel Hockey and uh, his work, but my wife can see it, right? (laughs) So we sync all our calendars and we can kind of vibe off each other's calendars. I can see what she's doing. She can see what I'm doing. I wonder if it's a bit like syncing our calendar with God. So God's got this master calendar. We kind of add ours to his. Is that going to work? That's the question that we're going to ask ourselves. Oh, God's got a big appointment for me there. How does that line up with what I'm doing? Verse 2. Actually, so the one... Verse 3, sorry. Whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbour, and who casts no slur on others. I, I wonder if this isn't a particularly challenging one for you. It is for me. If you think about the idea that it's all on record in God's house, you know, it, it's all on the record. Everything that you say is on the record. Even in the last week, That could be a bit of a scary thing to think about. Where God lives, every conversation, everything we say should be on the record. God in his house doesn't cast slurs on you, doesn't speak ill of you to people. If you're going to live in a way that is speaking ill of other people where you don't want every conversation to be on the record where you don't want everything that you say to be on the record you might have a tough time living with God what would it mean as we walked through our lives to be mindful of the fact that every conversation could be broadcasted if everybody could hear everything that you said if it was all being recorded a bit scary and of course you know it's good to 
to in our public lives. Um, be positive, to, to speak words of life, to encourage one another. It is true that in the complexity of life, sometimes we have to have confidential conversations, don't we? Sometimes um, those confidential conversations involve other people and there's some tension there. But there is also a way to have those conversations in a way that you could stand by, you know, if, if, if the context was, was given, in a way that you could kind of say before God, actually, I was doing the right thing there. But what does it mean to live in God's house if everything that we say is on the record? Does the tape of our life speak life? Verse 4. Who does? Sorry. Oh, verse two. That's why I'm getting confused because I'm working backwards. I'm even confusing myself. So the one whose way of life is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart. As I was reading this this week, this really spoke to me. Who speaks the truth of this heart? Because Graham's not here, I can actually speak positively about him. <laughs> Don't tell him. I'll just rely that he doesn't uh, rely on the fact that he won't listen to the podcast. Some of you who've um, had it been privy to, to the sort of operations of things while Graham's been here will have picked up on the fact that one of Graham's great gifts, even if it's a bit hard at times, is that he hates subtext. So Graham is one of those people where if, if you feel, if he gets the feeling that there's something that's not being said that needs to be talked about, he'll just call you on it. Has anyone had any experience of that with Graham? So um, that's kind of confronting at times uh, because we keep some things in the cupboard for a reason. But it occurred to me as I was thinking about this quality... Um, in an environment where there's kind of a mutually intended flourishing, how often is it true that the pathway to peace runs through some level of conflict? So you're, you're familiar with the idea of mutually assured destruction. When, when things go bad in a relationship, it's because trust goes, right? Uh, and you begin to kind of question whether the other person really has your best at heart. And so you stop actually communicating clearly because you don't trust that it's going to be handled well. But in a a good, healthy relationship, and it's easy to grab uh, a marriage as an example, you know that if things are going to get better, you need to talk about the issues at hand. And if you don't talk about the issues at hand. Things will definitely get worse. And in a share house, you've probably experienced a situation like this where someone, and it could be you or me, is the passive-aggressive party who hates conflict. And so rather than kind of bringing whatever needs to be talked about to the surface, you find other ways of sending that message. So Johnny never does the dishes. I'm not going to do his dishes when I do everyone else's dishes. I'm just going to neatly pile them up 
in the sink day after day after day who's been on the receiving end of something like that where I mean husbands and wives again will will know all about this you're on the way to football practice in the morning and for some reason the lawnmower's in the middle of the pathway to the car Um, in a share house maybe the clothes that you had put in the washing machine so that when there was enough to do a whole load are on the floor next to the washing machine and somebody else's washing is in the machine is that ringing any bells for, for anybody and you know that as much as it sort of seems like peacekeeping not to bring that thing up in conversation that you need to talk about it's really just delaying the inevitable conflict isn't it and so how often the pathway to health through those situations the pathway to peace leads through some degree of conflict and I wonder you know this is a little bit sort of it's, it's a suggestion it might not always be useful if that could be the difference say between peacekeeping and peacemaking so Jesus says I want you to be peacemakers right blessed are the peacemakers there is an approach to kind of keeping the peace where it's just like I won't rock the boat I won't say anything um, I don't want to make them feel threatened or insecure or I don't, I don't want to like have that difficult conversation now for whatever reason. Which might work for a little while, but inevitably it goes really toxic. To have health in that situation is to go, okay, let's talk about this thing so that we can make a plan from here. In share houses that I've lived in, it's always a really bad sign to me when people stop eating together. And I think it's because in the rhythm of life, a meal is one of those opportunities that we have to sit down together and sort of be forced to talk, right? Um, and maybe some people are getting a bit convicted here about TV dinners, but I think, there's, I think there's really something to this, actually. This language of putting stuff on the table. The first challenge is often getting to the table in the first place. If you've got a relationship with someone where you just can't even get them in conversation, that's not a good sign normally. We have to generally build these rhythms into our life where we're forced to have the conversation, we're forced to sit at the table. But then once we're there, we get rid of the subtext, right? We bring it all up to the surface so that we can talk about it and we can move on. And I wonder if this isn't something that we could get better at actually not I mean not us as a unique kind of community but Christians in general people not just being people who keep the peace because keeping the peace always kind of is a little bit of a futile task you think about peacekeepers in the world they're generally going into places where it's there's you know there's issues that are generations old there's tensions that are just um they're not able to be sorted out by having some people with blue hats on and machine guns just making sure that no one kills each other. What happens? As soon as the peacekeeping force goes, generally, it's all on for young and old again. But to get better at saying, no, I'm not going to live with subtext. I'm not going to live with my issues under the table. If I have something to speak to someone about, if I'm, uh, if, if I'm willing their flourishing, 
if I want the best for them, we need to talk about this. That's really, I think, where the language of covenant comes in and why it's often useful to think about a faith community as a covenant. You think about a marriage as a covenant. I am committed for life to your well-being, which means that I'm going to talk to you when I need to talk to you. In God's house, I think the psalmist is suggesting here that there's nothing under the table that it all comes up and if we want to live in God's house and we're inclined to keep subtext rolling to not actually be honest with our brothers and sisters about the real issues of our life to push through some of those difficult conversations we might have trouble living in the house of God the upshot of all this though is that the psalmist says if you can do these things you will not be shaken you will not be shaken you will be living with God living out his values living in that place where justice streams down I um, think that it's probably true that many of us here at some point in our lives have had a kind of mountaintop spiritual experience. I don't know what that was for you, whether it was when you first came to faith, maybe it was going on a missions trip, maybe it was I mean, going to a conference or meeting someone who showed you in a new and fresh way what it could look like to outlive the life of Jesus in this world. Can you, can you kind of recognise what I'm saying? That time where it's like, it's all falling into place. The most important thing to me right now, the most rewarding thing, is to be doing this God stuff. How often is it the case, though, that it's, it's kind of a blip, right? You, you, you're passionate, you're fired up. The, the reality that you experience of God's love or God's presence is there. And then over time it seems to fade. Can anyone identify with that picture? And maybe there's a degree of inevitability about that. But it also seems true to me that there are some people who just manage to be on the level, right? It can feel in your own spiritual life like you're going up and down, you're close to God and then you feel distant. It feels like prayers are being answered and then you struggle to pray It feels like the most exciting thing that you could be doing is reading your Bible and then you don't open it for weeks. Then there's these people who just just keep doing it, right? And you talk to them about their walk with God and the joy is there. It's just always there, even if they're having a crummy time. Do you know anyone like that? Pastor Clem comes to mind, maybe. I wonder if that's what it means to be living in the house of God, right? The really frustrating thing about the up and down that might happen once in your life or multiple times is that once you've dwelt in the temple, even just for a few days, visiting just doesn't cut it after that. Do you know what I mean? Like if you've had that mountaintop experience with God and then you come to church 
when you're on the down. And it's just like, this, this isn't it. There's got to be more to it than this. What's going on with the worship? It seems like no one cares that they're here. It almost spoils you for the normal rhythms of life when you have that experience. Some of you will know that um, in 2012, um, because I've told you this story, I was fishing the salmon run in a tributary of the Squamish River in British Columbia, and I took my shirt off. It was a lovely autumn day, and uh, one of the guys that I was fishing with happened also to be Australian, and he, he saw my shoulder and said, mate, I think you should get that thing on your shoulder checked out. And it was like one of those moments where I'm like, I know that's true, actually. I've been walking around for maybe months or years knowing that, but I was, you know, I'm a relatively young man. I just didn't go to the doctor. I never have needed to go to the doctor. Um, and there was something a little bit scary about going to the doctor because I felt fine, you know, like you, you actually, you don't want to know if you're not fine. <laughs> if you feel fine, you don't want to know that you're not fine. Um, and I think it was a real grace of God that this guy said that to me because it was enough just to make me think, yeah, I should do that. And so I went to the doctor and it was the first time in over a decade, I think, that I'd needed to go to the doctor. I'd barely taken my shirt off when he started writing a referral out to the dermatologist and, and oncologist. And um, when I got to that stage, uh, it wasn't good, actually. Um, the development in the particular part of the melanoma that I had was deep enough that they felt like, um, you know, this is often where we see metastasis Sization, um, I think they call it. Uh, and, um, yeah, that was scary. That was really, really scary. Um, but the thing is, I could have just kept going, you know? Like, it, I really think it was God's grace that got me there, that my friend said, you should go to, go to the doctor. But I recognise that there's lots of things in life like that where there's a truth that we don't want to know about like we feel like we're doing okay don't tell me that I'm not <laughs> maybe it's going to a financial advisor and kind of actually opening up the books and, and saying this is where I'm at I've been working for 20 years I probably should have more to show than this maybe it's going to the dentist I haven't been to the dentist in so long I, I know that you're going to say that I need fillings. So often, that first step that we need to take is the hardest, right? Even when you get bad news, there's a kind of relief in knowing that now you can begin to make a plan on the other side of that, that bad news. And if that's true when it comes to our teeth and our body and our finances how much more with our spiritual life right I think the reason why walking up the hill to the temple coming to church 
on a Sunday can be so dissatisfying is because God wants us to live there, actually. It's not a place that we're supposed to just be visiting. I mean, that was one of the things that Jesus did. He, he, he so obviously said it's not about this building anymore. It's about God living in people, people being the new temple. Could I get the band um, to come up this morning? You know, I, I wonder if you need to get an expert, a mechanic under the bonnet of your spiritual life, actually. You know that there's an oil change needed, and it's just a matter of crossing that threshold, making that decision to actually start to go to where you need to go. And maybe it looks like gathering up all your stuff, beginning to walk up the hill to God's house and laying it all out and saying, can we pick through this together, God? Because I recognise that it's not working living down there in the valley. I want to live with you. I want to be in the place that I was created to be. I want you to have a look at my calendar. I want you to have a look at my balance sheet. I want to sit around the table with you at mealtimes and talk about what needs to be talked about. This was produced by Cornerstone Christian Resources. It is deemed copyright and may be used by permission. For further information about Cornerstone